Welcome, everyone, to episode 104, CRISPR, iPSCs, and Disease. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm all right, although I'm up and down, crashing more than up on all the candy rejects. <laughs> last, night. last night was Halloween, and all like the the black licorice and milk duds got dumped on me. So I've been riding riding that all day. And, oh, uh, it's kind of catching up with me a little bit, if I'm honest. Poor, poor parent. <laughs> At least it wasn't your kid going. Here's an apple, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> At least it wasn't healthy snacks. Here's a toothbrush. <laughs> Yeah, we were up a little bit too late as a result of Halloween. What is it? Halloween on a Tuesday. I think we should just always make Halloween on a weekend. I don't know. But since we have no control over things like this, maybe we should deal with things we do have control over. Let's start the podcast. Okay. All right. Everyone out there, make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter... But you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And don't forget, subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher so new episodes will automatically download to your iPhone or other smartphone device. All right. We have a great show ahead today. We are going to discuss a super hot topic, like the surface of the sun. I don't know if it's that hot, but it's pretty hot in science and the world of stem cell biology with our guest, Dr. Chad Cowan from the Harvard Stem Cell Institute and Harvard University. Dr. Cowan is an expert on using CRISPR technology to interrogate disease using induced pluripotent stem cells. This is really important stuff moving forward, and it should be a fantastic conversation. But before we get into it, let's round it up. What do you say, Dalen? Yeah, I can't wait for this conversation. But first, for this week's roundup, we'd like to share Hematopoiesis News, another one of Connexon's 20 weekly science newsletters. Hematopoiesis News is free and keeps readers up to date on the latest research events, science news, policy, and jobs in the hematology world. Subscribe at www.hematopoiesisnews.com. All right, Kiki, let's get to the roundup. Why don't you get started? All righty. Well, last week I had some fun news about teenagers, kids. Let's do this again. Let's have more news about teenagers. Oh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when advertising was at its height for cigarettes, people were really worried about kids and smoking. And since then, we've dealt with the advertising issue, but now we have a new threat, e-cigarettes. And the jury is still kind of out on the effects of e-cigarettes, what kind of a threat they really are to health. However, a new study published online October 23rd in JAMA Pediatrics is the first to look at whether vaping higher amounts of nicotine is associated with more frequent and more intense vaping and cigarette use in the future. 
Researchers at the University of Southern California surveyed 181 10th graders from 10 high schools in the Los Angeles area who had reported vaping in the previous 30 days. They followed up six months later when those 10th graders had become 11th graders, and the kids answered questions about how much and how often they smoked and vaped in the past 30 days and about the amount of nicotine that they were ingesting from their vaping liquid. The researchers categorized the amount of nicotine as none or low, which is up to about 5 milligrams per milliliter, medium, 6 to 17 milligrams per milliliter, or high at 18 milligrams per milliliter or more. What they found is that every time there was a step up in level of nicotine concentration, teens increased their smoking frequency. They're about twice as likely to report frequent smoking versus no smoking at the six-month follow-up. And the teens who vaped a high nicotine liquid smoked seven times as many cigarettes per day as those who vaped without nicotine. So really, vaping of e-cigarettes that had high amounts of nicotine seems to affect the frequency and how heavily teens smoke and vape in the future. Yeah, I wonder how that would compare. Obviously, you can't like, you know, go back in time and get these kids on cigarettes, nor would you want to. No. But I wonder how that intake compares to what they might have had smoking cigarettes. I think the real takeaway, though, for me is that there's this whole illusory idea that vaping is like the safe alternative. Right. And clearly, you're still using an addictive drug, people. So, Yeah, nicotine is addictive. We know this. Vaping may have fewer or even just different actual health issues related to it because of the the chemicals that are included in the vaping liquid, but still, nicotine, you're doing more of it, yeah. Researcher sociologist Richard Mieck of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor says the study is important because it begins to chip away at the black box that links e-cigarette use with later use of regular cigarettes. And ideally, studies like this will encourage government agencies to develop policies that will make it very difficult for youth to obtain e-liquids containing nicotine. I'd be psyched if they got rid of a, a lot of them. I mean, you know those people, like, what do they call them? The clouders or something, where they blow out, like, massive. You're walking through this stuff in the street, and everyone's like, oh, no, it's not smoke, but I, it smells like something. I'm probably getting high from it. I wish you would keep your clouds to yourself, people. Absolutely. I agree there. Speaking of smoke in the air, let's talk about pollution. Turns out that there's a lot of pollution in the world right now. There's a report by the Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health. It's the first time that reports have been all brought together under one umbrella, linking dirty air, water, soil, premature deaths, (laughs) everything. Good gracious. I read today that somewhere around 2,100 cities around the world have levels of air pollution higher than what is recommended (laughs) for health. 2,100 cities. I mean, it's a lot of cities. So this report from The Lancet, it finds uh, in the most severely polluted countries, 25% of premature deaths could be attributed to air pollution or pollution, especially in the air. And more than half of the global deaths from air pollution alone in 2015 occurred in India and China. One in every six premature deaths worldwide is linked to either dirty air, water, or soil. 
and these are pretty much concentrated in the world's poorest populations. There's an estimated 9 million people who died from pollution exposure in 2015. That's three times as many deaths as from AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined, and 15 times as many deaths as from war and all forms of violence. About 90% of the world's urban population lives in cities that do not meet the World Health Organization standards, and air pollution affects more than just the lungs, suggesting that there is a contributing factor from cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and also contributing to cognitive decline. And there's not enough research, really, to really gauge the effects of chemicals like endocrine disruptors that might interfere with body metabolism. And so these numbers might be an underestimate. They might be low. In addition to pollution's role in disease, this report estimates that exposure to these sources of pollution put more than a $4.6 trillion drain on the global economy. And then Joel Kaufman from the University of Washington School of Public Health in Seattle says, I think the take home of this is to show how high the health burden is and how decisions made today can save lives today, not just sometime in the future. I don't know, Keeks. Do you think we've reached peak pollution? Are we on the way down? Or you think we're still building up our polluted atmosphere? I mean, China, it seems, has made a pact to go toward more nuclear power, but as long as they have new coal power plants coming online, there's going to be a lot more pollution there. And until the developing areas of the world are assisted by the developed areas in the world in more sustainable practices, in practices that can potentially clean up these problem areas, it's not really going to get better. And in fact, I mean, we have issues here in the United States. If we take away some of the regulations that the EPA takes care of at this point in time, we could go backwards. We could We're slip going backwards. backwards. We're slipping. Yeah. I could tell you that right now. I don't know. Fingers crossed that we can make progress on this. But if nothing else, if people don't care about healthy people, the economic aspect, you know, people, there's a, an argument made that to be cleaner is going to put a financial drain on industry, but there's already a drain that is massive around the world, and it's possible that they could balance themselves out. Yeah, the healthcare costs a lot. Maybe they'll save a ton on healthcare. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, we're just spending the money on healthcare. You know, the industry needs to save the money, though. You know, let's put more money into the industry. Who cares about the people? <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, it makes me so sad. But anyway, there are laws going into play that do have positive repercussions, especially laws related to concussions. A report online October 19th in the American Journal of Public Health showed that more than two and a half years after laws that were enacted by all 50 states and the District of Columbia to protect young athletes, there's been a decline in concussions among high school athletes. So it's working. Researchers looked at concussion data from 2005 to 2016 collected in an online system for sports injuries from a nationally representative sample of U.S. high schools. Nearly 2.7 million reported concussions occurred during that time. It's a lot of concussions. 
This is an annual average of 39.8 concussions per 100,000 times a player hit the field for practice or games among athletes in nine sports, football, basketball, soccer, baseball, or wrestling for boys and basketball, soccer, softball, and volleyball for girls. And the rate of new and recurrent concussions was climbing before these laws were enacted. But then 2.6 years after the laws went into effect, the rate of recurrent concussions dropped about 10%. New concussions have a slight downturn beginning at 3.8 years after the laws came into being. And most of the new laws require education on symptoms and signs of concussions for those who watch the athletes, the athletes themselves, coaches, and parents. So it's this awareness, increasing awareness of symptoms that is helping instead of just an actual uptick in injuries. And this drop may also be due to the law's provisions that take athletes off the field after a concussion and keep them off until a medical provider says they're okay to go back on. But it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. I, I mean, I don't, maybe you watch football, maybe you don't. But since they've – I don't watch a ton of football, but every single game I watch, which is rare because I don't have cable – but every time I watch, they stop the game like two or three times because of concussion protocol. So, I mean, their, their awareness and their kind of accounting is maybe better, but there's still a lot more, you know, concussions, I think, than there ought to be in sport. Yeah, absolutely. So awareness is one step, but preventing the concussions in the first place is where we need to move, especially... Oh, each other so hard, for Christ's sake. can you two-hand touch? Right? But this is especially for kids, you know, yeah, for the for developing sure. brain. High school students, are their brains are still developing. This, these concussions could have long-term damaging effects. But, you know, let's talk about completely different long-term damaging effects. How about inbreeding? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So at a meeting of the American Society of Human Genetics, researcher David Clark from the University of Edinburgh reported, we know, we know this, that a mating with a close relative, this is inbreeding, reduces the ability to produce offspring. Hmm. But the question is exactly how or why. And so he and colleagues collected data on more than a million people from more than 100 culturally diverse populations to calculate the effect inbreeding has on traits related to evolutionary fitness. So that's the likelihood you'll pass on your genes to the next generation, your reproductive success chance. So they found offspring of second cousins or closer relatives, first cousins, siblings, etc., make up about 10% of the world population, which is a pretty significant amount. It's a lot. I know. It's a lot. There, there are laws on the books, though, that say in the United States you can't marry your cousins, right? You can't marry anyone closer than your second cousin. So many places have laws like this, but many don't. And especially in developing areas of the world, there maybe aren't the cultural taboos against it. But these calculations that they made, they found that compared with their outbred peers, offspring of first cousins have 1.4 fewer opposite sexual partners, have sex for the first time 11 months later, they have 0.11 fewer children and are 1.6 times as likely to be childless. And these are all indicators of reduced reproductive ability. 
Clark went on to say that this childlessness was not because of a lack of opportunity to have kids, however, but instead is because of fertility problems. Additionally, children of first cousins are about one centimeter shorter on average than their peers and 0.84 kilograms lighter at birth. So they're smaller. They have five fewer months of education, and this is presumably because they have less intellectual capacity than people with more distantly related parents. So this is this, on average, five fewer months of education, which could mean they're not, you know, not going on to college, or maybe they are dropping out of high school a little bit earlier. The more closely related the parents, the worse it is for reproductive success. Children of incest are three centimeters shorter and four times as likely to be childless than outbred peers. So the data goes with all the anecdotes. This inbreeding, it's not good for human progress and reproduction. I got a couple things to say. One, <laughs> all those measures that they were talking about there, it seemed to me I have a problem separating cause and effect because they're saying it's because they're outbred, but I'm like, right. maybe they're consanguineous because they're all, you know, maybe had a diminished upbringing. And the other thing mm -hmm. is I would say, yes, there is a downside <laughs> to consanguinity, but the opportunity cost is much less. I mean, they're right there. They're just sitting there waiting to be incested. So, hey, it's a trade-off evolutionarily. Yeah, it's the, okay, this is easy, but in the long term... It's not going to work out. It's not going to work out, no. That's all I've got. That's all I've got. You ended on a really low note. I, it was a weird note. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm disturbed. I'm disturbed. I'm not because I was doing like a cost benefit analysis there. I was like, should I do the incest thing? Uh, we scared. don't need to talk about flowers in the <laughs> attic. Let's move forward. All right. I'm moving forward. So there's a lot of talk and reports about turning stem cells into neural cells, you know, for treatment of neurodegenerative diseases, but that's a long way from efficiently generating mature neurons, okay? Neural lineage, neural cells aren't necessarily mature functioning neurons. Um, and that's why researchers at the University Medical Center of Johannes Gutenberg University Men's have now developed a promising technique that will facilitate the differentiation of stem cells into neurons by using a hydrogel to create uh, stiffness-controlled scaffold for artificial brain tissue, and this hydrogel also embeds in it factors that promote development of the neurons, okay? So this is quoting Dr. Marcolo Salierno, who uh, is heading the project. We use a new type of biomaterial in our experiments. Its structure and consistency can be modified to create properties similar to those of the human brain. It has the same elasticity as cerebral tissue and has special adhesive molecules that promote neuronal fate and neurogenesis, thus creating the ideal conditions for neurogenesis. So this is like another one of those stories, I think, that kind of makes sense intuitively. We have to really recreate the milieu in which these cells are born. We got to make these cells grow on tissue that's similar to what you'd find in the brain. This is a report that was recently published in Stem Cell Reports. And in addition to the proteins present in the brain, the hydrogel also contains a synthetic adhesive. It's called IKVAV. ICVAV. ICVAV, you know, that stuff. <laughs> in, in combination with the growth factors in hydrogel and the ICVAV, this biomaterial accelerates the process, increasing the chances of generating mature neurons from 
neural stem cells. Now, these are a bunch of experiments that were initially undertaken in vitro, and as a result, they were able to see how this biomaterial interacts with human stem cells, neural stem cells, and how they differentiate into mature neurons, showing it's kind of biocompatible. And the next step is to move this into an in vivo atmosphere and a treatment to, you know, go after injured brains. The idea is that you can inject this into just the material itself, into severely damaged brain regions in order to improve the recruitment and growth of endogenous neural stem cells to improve tissue regeneration. Over the long term, this is an idea for providing help for stroke victims or those suffering from other neurodegenerative diseases. So I think it's important. It's a nice reminder that getting cells that are within the lineage isn't necessarily enough. We really need to coax these all the way down to the specific cells that are doing the job in the tissue and also to organize them in a way that they are amenable to functioning in a physiological manner. So a nice step forward from our boys over there in uh, University Medical Center of Mons. It's exciting. I mean, the idea that you can create implantable neurons that will help with these degenerative diseases with stroke patients. I mean, yeah, regaining function in the brain is pretty essential to so much functionality in life. Yeah, and we're talking about a factor. Maybe it's kind of divorcing itself from the, the controversial cell idea. Maybe you can just inject this material yeah. and get kind of endogenous material to regenerate. Mm. So it's kind of an extension of these cell-based therapies that's recruiting endogenous machinery. And, you know, that's always best. Why put something in there if you don't have to? Yep. Oh, man, there's some other things that, you know, you don't have to put anything in there. It gets activated. And that's, you know, that's bad. That's cancer. One of the deadliest cancers, melanoma, actually begins in individual cells, most often cells that are located in the clear skin. But exactly which cells these are and under what circumstances they develop has remained unclear. That is, until now, a group of scientists based at Cornell University, upstate in Ithaca, now report that melanoma may arise from melanocyte stem cells, specifically melanocyte stem cells that have become melanoma competent because they've accumulated a sufficient number of genetic mutations. So, Let's just elaborate on this. Merely acquiring a large enough mutational burden is not enough. It's not enough just to have all these, you know, one hit, two hit, three hit hypothesis in order to give rise to melanoma. These melanocyte stem cells must, in addition, be subjected to UV radiation strong enough to initiate a protective response, or rather, a would-be protective response. And let me give you a little bit more detail on that. Ordinarily, there's a protective response initiated by UV light. In melanocytes, it activates the release of melanin, the pigment that shields the skin from the sun's rays. In melanoma-competent MSCs, our melanocyte stem cells, let's call them MCSCs, however, something else can happen. This is a sequence of events that leads to melanoma. This sequence of events was detailed in the October 12 issue of Cell Stem Cell, article entitled Melanocyte Stem Cell Activation and Translocation Initiate Cutaneous melanoma in response to UV exposure. So the article not only delineates melanoma formation, pointing toward all this mutational, successive mutational burden, plus the UV stimulation, it also identifies a gene that's critical to the process. And interestingly, when you suppress this gene, you can suppress the emergence of melanoma. So these scientists at Cornell, they use these mice engineered with 
melanocyte stem cell mutations. So they had all the pre-mutations. They were poised to generate the melanoma. In one set, not only had the mutations, but they also had knockout of this one gene called HGMA2. And this HGMA2 has been suspected of being expressed in response to UV radiation. And when expressed, it facilitates the melanocyte stem cell movement from the base of the skin hair follicle to the skin surface or epidermis, which is where the cells release melanin. So here, get this. Hmm. These mice with the pre-mutation, they were given a very low dose of UV radiation. Usually it would just trigger a tanning response. Oh, how we'd like to be tanned. I've always wanted to tan. That would be nice. (laughs) You're just too white, my dear. Please. No. I'm more like pink constantly. Right pink. <laughs> but um, here's the thing. The mice with the tumor mutations and the knockout of this HGMA, they didn't develop the melanoma, okay? So when you had the HGMA and you got the UV, you got melanoma. When you got rid of this gene, the gene that is involved with the melanocyte stem cell activation and development of melanin, when you get rid of that activation response, they don't get melanoma, okay? So this is amazing because maybe people at risk for melanoma who have a lot of this burden, the tumor, the mutation burden, you could inactivate this one gene and prevent the melanocyte stem cell from ever proceeding to the bona fide or full-blown melanoma. So maybe people at risk, like all these Australians or all these crackers like you, Kiki, we should get you (laughs) on some of this HGMA-suppressive Small molecules or something. Let's look into it. Please, we need you in this world, my dear. Yeah, I'll talk to my dermatologist. (laughs) No, I guess the big question here, though, is what does this HMGA2, what does this gene do? I mean, it, it triggers this melanocyte stem cell movement, right? It's involved in getting the melanin producing cells to the surface of the skin. But what else is it involved in? Well, great question, right? Because if we knock it out and it's doing something important, that's no good. Yeah. A lot of study needs to be done to further understand the HGMA2 function, but I can tell you it's a chromatin remodeling factor. So it's clearly upstream. I don't know about clearly, but possibly like an upstream factor that maybe opens up the chromatin or restricts it in order to allow a lot of other activating, you know, co-transcriptional activators, repressors, whatever, to uh, bind the DNA and mobilize these melanocyte stem cells. So we got to see about that because maybe there's something more druggable along that pathway. But until then, I'm counting on HGMA to keep you, you know, melanoma free. And maybe we could suppress it. Then I could actually go in the sun (laughs) and get a tan. (laughs) Gonna get you tan. I'll see you in Mexico, my dear. That's right. Without a sun hat. (laughs) Well, you know, I'll tell you who needs a sun hat. And they need a lot of things, these things. They're called naked mole rats. I love them. Oh, you do? You're a real freak. They've got so many cool things going on. Well, you know, you're right about that. They're not good to look at. You know that these naked mole rats, they have eusocial breeding? Did you know this? Like bees, Mm -hmm. when they have these massive colonies that live underground, and there's a single female and like a couple of males, and they manage the whole reproductive burden of a colony, and all the other females, their ovulation is suppressed. Isn't that weird? It is. It's one of the many weird things about the mole rats, those naked ones. Yep. You know, I digress, but it's really weird. And if you kill 
that mom, they all get ovulating and have babies. All right, that's an aside. Naked mole rats, the reason why most people care about them is because they, like, live forever, pretty much. I mean, for their, you know, size and, you know, where they are evolutionarily. They live for a real long time, and they never get cancer, okay? So they're a real valuable model for studying aging and cancer um, due to this exceptional longevity and cancer resistance. And the so, fact that they're like in the mammalian family tree. Yeah. So like, you know, exactly. it's close to us as opposed to like, I don't know, a sea urchin. Right. Exactly. We can see something that has no other mammalian behavior. Like you say, look like bees. They're like bees. It's weird. But, you know, they're this great model for mammalian aging cancer research because they pretty much don't age or get cancer. And what's interesting about these also, their hypothesis here, this group, this was published in Stem Cell Reports, they thought, hey, you know what, let's see, maybe there's something about these cells in the reprogramming process that may be relevant to this phenotype. And uh, they tried to reprogram the naked mole rat mature cells and found that they were resistant to reprogramming um, in response to the Yamanaka factors. Uh, but if you express that large T antigen, you dramatically improve that reprogramming. Also, just mechanistically speaking, inactivating the RB gene tumor suppressor, but not P53 tumor suppressor was sufficient to improve reprogramming efficiency as well. And that just elucidated that chromatin may be an issue here, and the chromatin may be tightly bound. So they looked at the global histone landscape, of naked mole rat DNA and show that there were much higher levels of the repressive H3K27 methylation marks and lower levels, conversely, of the activating H3K acetylation marks relative to mouse, that is. So it looks like the naked mole rat genome is much more tightly epigenetically restricted relative to their mammalian neighbors. And it showed that the promoters in particular of reprogramming genes are more closed in the naked mole rat than in mouse promoters. So this suggests that maybe this is the mechanism whereby uh, naked mole rat at least can be refractory to direct reprogramming or induce pluripotency, but also may give us a clue as to why these cells can resist dedifferentiation of mature cell types that's kind of implicit with the formation of any cancer or kind of, you know, degenerative disease. So maybe we're seeing how these animals exhibit this phenotype. Maybe the key is the epigenome. If we tighten up our epigenome, we'll live forever. Do you believe that? That would be awesome. I do. I want to tighten up my epigenome right now. (laughs) (laughs) You need to get in the gym, work that epigenome. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that suggests the epigenome might be responsible for lots of metabolic factors and developmental factors and potentially like aging. And yes. Probably is. Let's be honest. I mean, that's, it's like wind. People are like, yeah, Wint yeah. probably does this. Wint probably does that. Wint does it all. Epigenome does it all, too. The epigenome is everything, all right? And that's not really an, an overstatement, I wouldn't say. Yeah, but maybe, you know, using this naked mole rat evidence, if not resisting aging, maybe it's the cancer aspect that'll be the most important fallout from this. I kind of like aging. I don't want to not age. I don't want to look old, but I don't want to live forever either. I'd rather not get yeah. cancer, though. That's for sure. Yeah, right. You know what I need, though, when I do get old and my axons are degenerating? I'm going to need a unidirectional fascicle. What? what Yeah, (laughs) me neither. I don't know what that is. But I'll tell you, you know, it's important. During development, axons, they spontaneously assemble into these fascicles. 
and it's essential component of forming nerves and the tracts and the nervous system as they extend within a spatially constrained path, usually set down by the vascular tree, I should mention. However, understanding the axonal, axonal fascicle, it's been hampered because there's no like model, and I don't think there's a very good understanding of what the hell it is, frankly. Not a lot of people talking about the fascicle, but I think that's going to change because this group here in stem cell reports, they're reporting generation of a nerve organoid composed of a robust fascicle of axons extended from a spheroid of human stem cell-derived motor neurons within a custom-designed micro-device. So this micro-device, it's made up of this narrow channel that provides that microenvironment facilitating the growing axons spontaneous assembly into this unidirectional fascicle. And this fascicle was made out of axons. I mean, they proved it. They showed it was electrically active, it was elastic, it could serve as a model to evaluate degeneration of axons in vitro. So this is a big step forward for everyone who cares about this type of thing. I mean, that's a lot of people. I'm not neural. I don't want to make light of it. I just don't know what it is. But this nerve organoid model should facilitate future studies on the development of the axonal fascicle, and particularly, you know, drug screening for diseases that affect axon fascicles, which, you know, probably is, there's a few drugs out there that don't, aren't good for the fascicles. So let's take care of our fascicles. It's the structure, how these nerves bundle together, how they wire together, you know, as especially in the organoid model can tell us a lot about development of the brain, of nerve structures within the brain. And, you know, potentially, I mean, I'm seeing maybe how do certain environmental factors affect the development of schizophrenia? I mean, Mm. you know, schizophrenia is a problem of miswiring. And so this could potentially help with that kind of study. There you go. The fascicle. You know more than I do. There we go. <laughs> and then I'm thinking if you add in the glial cells and how do they connect to the fascicles and then oh you've got the... Gosh. Oh, gosh. It's so good. It's yeah. So good. Yeah. Us, we neural people. <laughs> You're having a nergasm over there. You need That's to relax. Right. I can't relax. There's so much <laughs> exciting stuff going on. Let's not relax. Let's keep going. We're going to keep going. We have finished the roundup, and now it is time to move on to our interview. And our friends at Stem Cell Technologies invite you now to watch a webinar presentation by our guest today, Chad Cowan of Harvard University. It's titled Investigating Metabolic Disease with Human Pluripotent Stem Cells. Chad talked about using genome editing to model metabolic diseases with the aim of filling in the gap between fundamental biology and clinical therapies. So you can watch this webinar to learn how to use the CRISPR-Cas system in human pluripotent stem cells. If you're interested in this area of study, this is going to be a really useful webinar to you and potentially lead you in the right direction to making your studies work. So watch the webinar at www.stemcell.com slash Cowan, C-O-W-A-N, stemcell.com slash Cowan. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome our guest today, Dr. Chad Cowan. Chad is big up in the stem cell world. He's a principal investigator and associate professor in the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology 
The Cowan Lab's goal is to understand how naturally occurring human genetic variations protect or predispose some people to cardiovascular and metabolic disease, the leading cause of death in the world, and to use that information to develop therapies that can protect the entire population from disease. Dr. Cowan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I just want to mention for all you listening out there, you're not used to hearing my voice in the intro. That's because we're recording on Halloween, and true to form, Kiki, she likes to play the part. She's going as a mime, so she's not going to be uh, weighing in audibly, but you can trust that she's in the background making all kinds of motions. No, to be serious, she had a conflict, so it's just me and Chad, which is great for me. He's a personal hero of mine, and uh, we're going to go in deep. So first, Dr. Khan, why don't you start us off by telling the audience a little bit more detail about you and the focus of your work. Yeah, I'd be happy to. My laboratory, as you mentioned, is located at Harvard. And for the last approximately 10 years, we've been solely focused on trying to understand what I like to refer to as metabolic disease. And to unpack that a bit, the description I use for metabolic disease for the undergraduates at Harvard is essentially to say all the things that happen to you that you don't want to happen to you when you get fat. So as a result of obesity, you typically have poor blood chemistry, often uh, high blood lipid levels. These contribute to a host of problems, including diabetes. And ultimately, most people with these conditions will die of uh, heart attacks or uh, kidney diseases. My group focuses on trying to understand exactly what the root cause of many of these problems are, and we've been bootstrapping our way back towards even the root cause of obesity itself. But really, we're more focused on sequelae, the things that happen as a result of getting fat. And at the end of the day, I think all of us would be perfectly happy if we might be a little bit overweight, but you know, perfectly healthy for the remainder of our lives. So that's a big focus. Yeah, I should mention, I should have mentioned in the intro, the H-bomb. I'm sorry about that. You subtly reminded me. He's a professor, associate professor at Harvard for all those out there who don't know him already. I just want to ruminate. I'm sorry to do this to you, Chad, but I'm going to ruminate on your career to date, if you'll just, you know, sit quietly for a moment, because I think it's important to discuss your arc. So years and years ago, it seems like now over a decade ago, some might argue that you kind of launched the field of uh, human embryonic stem cell investigation when you derived a bunch of lines, the primary lines that are still referenced today. It was a New England Journal of Medicine article. And then after that, you uh, transitioned to doing more translational stuff, looking to differentiation of these cells and what we can do with them. You programmed pluripotent stem cells into white and brown adipocytes. By the way, I'm just mentioning your major impact stories. There are a handful of these but many more uh, stories that you've contributed to science. Moving on, you got into manipulation with Talens, trying to engineer human embryonic stem cell lines, and then moved on to CRISPR, using CRISPR, a similar technique, specifically in the hematopoietic system. While you were there, dabbling in the neighborhood, I guess, you went into vascular endothelial and smooth muscle cells. This is all cell stem cell nature, cells, biology, everything, everything, big stories. And now, most recently in cell stem cell, using induced pluripotent stem cell differentiation on a very large scale to, you know, validate these GWAS variants that are relevant to metabolic disease. So I guess you started, you know, talking about your focus. I kind of referenced your whole arc there. Where are you moving? What's the direction of your research like specifically? How do you think we can apply the findings specifically in your lab and at large to exert some kind of influence on these maladies. 
That's a terrific question. I think you hit the nail on the head for a lot of my career. We've been doing what I would call tool building. We've been building the tools that give us the opportunity to ask the questions. And the question ultimately is, what can we do about these diseases? And my lab has always been focused on possibly developing therapeutics. And so where we're going now is that you sort of touched on it. It turns out as I started to investigate metabolic diseases, the first thing that came to me was how complicated they are. Not only is because there's genetic factors, environmental factors, and behavioral factors, but it involves basically every tissue in the body that could be metabolically active. And that doesn't just mean fat tissue, which is the one that we can sort of visibly see changing when people are undergoing this disease process, but also the liver, the vascular system, the muscles, on and on and on. And so my lab has slowly branched into each one of these cells and tissue types to try to understand this complex interplay between them that sort of sets your overall homeostatic metabolic set point. Where we're going is sort of twofold. One is what you might call the plain vanilla drugs of today, we've found some marvelous targets using human genetics and then our stem cell models to really understand their molecular mechanism for what would be called small molecules or drugs of today. And so we're working together with a number of pharmaceutical companies to try to turn those insights into what might be real medicines. And the second place that my lab has put an enormous focus on is the true promise of stem cells. You know, what we were all told more than 10 years ago is that if we had a liver problem or if our beta cells uh, stopped working because of diabetes, stem cells were going to make new cells or new organs for transplantation. And, you know, we're all still waiting for that promise. And a big portion of what my lab does now is to try to make that stem cell replacement therapy a reality. That's a great point. I'm glad you led into that. And, you know, I'm not a skeptic because I'm on the team with you. I believe that we're moving toward that. But I think maybe a lot of the field, as most science, follows this path of maybe outsized hype and promotion and then, you know, kind of temper expectations and maybe the fad and the trend moves on to a new therapy or a new application. I think maybe people are moving now past kind of cell-based regenerative, maybe kind of full circle back to just old-fashioned genetic engineering to address disease. Do you think that, and maybe that's not the case, but do you think that maybe there's reduced enthusiasm for regenerative approaches, you know, cell-based replacement type approaches, because there are fundamental limitations that are standing in the way that maybe we've realized are really greater than we thought? Or do you think it's more of a like kind of a regulatory limitation, a safety type thing, or both are more factors? So I think that, you know, it is complicated and it's probably a combination of all of those. I do think that we're on the cusp of what would be the cell biology revolution. You know, the medicines of old were small molecules and then more recently antibodies, which have taken over 30 or 40 years to mature as real medicines, have become the major cash cow for large pharma and have really transformed the way in which we treat a lot of diseases. And then more recently, you touched on it, gene therapy has had a resurgence and you're starting to see hundreds of gene therapy trials with some of the most sophisticated being these gene editing trials where you're actually changing the genome to affect the sort of functional cure. But the promise of cell replacement is right there. You know, we've been using bone marrow transplants to treat cancer for decades, and you're starting to see the idea of using cells as a therapeutic really blossoming with these immuno-oncology applications such as CAR-T. That's starting to now magnify into the regenerative medicine area where we've always hoped to 
renew a tissue or replace a tissue. And while you might say, you know, there was a lot of promise and a lot of hype, we all have to keep in mind that embryonic stem cell itself is just barely 20 years old and iPS cells, which are really what made this less morally and technically difficult, are only 10 years old. So the fact that we're almost ready to begin some of the first cell replacement trials is actually stunning to me. And it, I guess it's not surprising that your power of imagination is much faster and easier to ignite than it is to sort of move into reality. But you're right that there are barriers. There are technical barriers. There are regulatory barriers. But you're slowly seeing those uh, come down, especially the regulatory and the technical. In the last decade, we've overcome some enormous obstacles in taking these pluripotent cells that can become any cell in the body and actually teaching them efficiently in a dish or in a bioreactor to become the cell type we want. And you've seen companies now spring forth that are going to do this and treat Parkinson's disease with dopaminergic neurons. You've seen some that want to treat heart disease with cardiomyocytes, those that want to treat diabetes of both types with beta cells. So I do think that we're at the very beginning of what's going to be a groundswell in this cell replacement era. But there is a lot more to be done, and we could talk probably all day about what else is out there and what are the future opportunities and what are the current obstacles. Yeah, well, I don't want to go all day, but just to follow up with one question, because, you know, you're a leader, and I know that if there's, it can be done, you're probably thinking about doing it, maybe not in every field. But talk to me about, you were uh, kind of alluding to a lot of these cellular therapies that were based on single cells, cells that kind of can reconstitute the system on a you know, single cell or suspended cell uh, resolution. How about whole organs? Do you think there's anything to maybe either de novo construction, which I think is maybe a, a little bit farther off, 3D printing, or how about kind of like the chimera idea, growing organs in pigs? You know, there's these studies where you take the viral elements out of the human or the pig genome to try and make it friendly humans. Which of these therapies do you think actually has legs, if any? Yeah, so I think that that is the last frontier, which is beyond cells to tissues and organs. And you're seeing simple tissues being made where people can make multi-layered, you know, sort of skin grafts. Those are starting to become common. Or even you could say endothelial cells with, with vascular smooth muscle to actually make what would be a, a real vessel. But the more complex organ, like a liver replacement or a kidney replacement, you know, the ideas are the ones that you've just talked about, making a chimeric either human animal or an animal that's been genetically modified to be acceptable for human transplantation, or this fully bioengineered synthetic organ uh, substitute. Both of those are still very nascent fields. And I am not normally a betting man, or when I am, I almost always lose. So if I tell you, put your money on the chimeras, it probably means bioengineered organs are going to win. But, uh, I've been watching these really with a lot of enthusiasm, and what I'm shocked by is how quickly and rapidly some of the engineering approaches have been progressing. I do think that they've got the bigger obstacle, but I also think that they use you know, a rather empirical approach to determining whether or not one type of one way is going to work to grow something versus another way. And, you know, some of the obstacles in, for instance, interspecies transplantation have been around for decades and we still don't have good solutions to them. And the chimera approach is going to face a lot of ethical and moral dilemmas depending upon the particular society where those are sort of brought out. So I've been putting a lot of stock in what the bioengineers have been able to do in terms of purely artificial organs. And there's been huge strides. I mean, if you go back to when I first started in this field, 
and we would talk about just a cluster of cells together that might function similarly into these multi-layered organ-like tissues, it's astounding, actually. Nice synthesis. All right, so let's get down, coming circle back around to the nitty-gritty of your recent study in cell stem cell, because I think this is really reflecting kind of how the current state of the art is impacting disease right now. Can you elaborate on this large-scale study, how you used CRISPR to interrogate disease? Yeah, absolutely. So probably most people aren't aware of the fact that iPS cells and stem cells, while they have taught us a lot about disease, they've taught us a lot about what are kind of profoundly disturbing diseases, diseases that are often monogenic, meaning there's a single gene involved. And when you inherit the sort of mistaken copy of that gene, you have a really devastating disease phenotype. And Many of us can think of examples of these diseases like cystic fibrosis, for example. So when you have the disease gene, you have the uh, disease itself, and the disease is easy to see, and it manifests itself quite prominently on a cellular level. And we've used stem cells to learn more about these diseases and to develop drugs and other therapeutics for the diseases. What we haven't been as good at is trying to understand what's going to give all of us you know, something that will be a disease later on, whether it's a disease of aging or the sort of more complex multifactorial diseases like I've been talking about, diabetes or heart disease. And the reason why is that these are typically very subtle. It will be just a few minor genetic changes that may predispose you over your lifetime or maybe protect you over your lifetime to the particular disease state. And what we wanted to do was to try to see whether or not stem cells could serve as a surrogate for these really large population biology studies people have done. These are typically on the order of 100,000, 300,000 individuals that you collect that have a particular disease trait or don't. And then you try to say, what's the genetic makeup of the individuals and can we find or identify genes that would be involved in this disease biology? The problem there is first, they're enormous. And then second, even if you find the gene that's involved, you have no idea of exactly how it's functioning and where in the human body it might be going wrong to give rise to the disease biology. So we set out to use iPS cells in probably their most powerful way, which is to imagine that they might be little humans in a dish. So surrogates for each of the individuals that they might represent, especially induced pluripotent stem cells. So we took a cohort of individuals that had already been studied for decades and decades in Framingham, Massachusetts as part of the Framingham Heart Study. We made iPS cells from donated uh, somatic cells, in fact, blood cells that uh, many of the participants gave us. And then from those cells, we actually differentiated them into fat and liver. And that's because the trait that we were studying was the one that actually seems to predispose people to heart attack the most, which is this bad cholesterol. So if you've got elevated levels of cholesterol throughout your lifetime, it's highly likely that you'll have a heart attack later in life and you'll most likely die because of that. And so we wanted to know, could we use these cell models directly from patients with genetic backgrounds that we know might either predispose them or protect them to heart attack to find out something interesting about the biology? And the short answer was yes, <laughs> which to me was an enormous relief because when we set out on this entire sort of journey and, and area of investigation, there was always the possibility that we would spend the five to seven years doing this and the thousands and thousands of dollars and it wouldn't work, right? It's possible that pluripotent cells just wouldn't be able to tell you something about complex genetic disease and the complex biology that they are actually involved in. But luckily for us, what we found was just the opposite. If you design your study right, if you make iPS cells from enough individuals and you look in the right tissue and cell type where you think that there's actually 
change as a result of the gene that's affected or the small changes that occur, you can actually uh, learn a lot about the disease biology. So we were able to pinpoint particular single nucleotide polymorphism in individuals that resulted in a change in LDL cholesterol by changing a single gene, which seemed to have a sort of a large effect in the liver specifically over how your lipid metabolism was regulated. And by using stem cells in this way, not only does it allow you to do future studies where you have less understanding of either the cell type or even the gene and sort of try to just do it on a phenotypic basis, I think it opens the door for some really exciting times in biology. So most people don't know that the first time that a drug sees a person is probably in a phase one clinical trial. And what probably helps predict why drugs are so ineffective for the diseases they're meant to treat is that they have all these side effects as soon as we try them out in patients. And what I think that this study of using iPS cells as surrogates for people in a dish teaches us is that we might be able to do the same thing in drug discovery or in even sort of a phase 0.5 clinical trial where instead of using patients to test the new drugs on, I cohort of induced pluripotent cell from a group of people that would be representative of those patients and then test them for both effect and safety, you know, in addition to efficacy, thereby more cheaply and more quickly evaluating whether or not a drug was worth taking into people for real in, say, a phase one or phase two trial. So it's really exciting to me to see the culmination of this field, you know, the technologies that allow us to make iPS cells from many, many people at once the ability to efficiently differentiate them into cell types that are involved in disease, and then to use both insights, genetic insights and these populations of cells to learn more about a disease and then to try to now use that insight to treat the disease. So you said a lot of people. What are we talking about a lot of people? Because I have a feeling that you're kind of understating it. Yeah, so the it depends. The, we were one of one group in a large consortium funded by the NIH. And if you add together all of the iPS cells that our consortium alone made, it was well over 5,000. So that means 5,000 different individuals were represented by iPS cells in a dish. In our study, we were actually using a, just a small subset. We at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute made several hundred iPS cell lines from individuals in the Framingham Heart Study. But we actually took a small subset that was genotyped to be at risk for heart attack or protected from heart attack, and that represented about 68 individuals, and we were able to do a study. It is important to note, and I think you were getting at this, that studies in the past have used four, five, six, maybe 10 cell lines. So, you know, making this jump to the hundreds of cell lines or the 60s of cell lines is, is in fact, a technical achievement. And I think that what you're seeing is that as more and more tools are developed to make the, it easier to grow the cells, differentiate the cells, more and more groups are going to be able to come to terms with the idea of doing uh, experiments on a much larger scale. And it won't surprise me that in the near future, you'll probably see people taking cohorts of potentially thousands and doing similar approaches, especially when paired with these advances in single cell anal analytics that we're seeing, whether it be single cell RNA-seq or single cell flow sorting and even mass spectrometry that, you know, people have recently reported. Yeah, you're, I guess it's kind of like Moore's Law, but in biology, right? Where we're able to get more and more information out of less and less material. I think maybe there's, there's some people out there, and I think it's important, you must agree with me as a scientist, that when people come out with scary scenarios, crying foul, saying we should restrict the research, although we may argue with them, and we ought to, in defense of the science, we have to listen to them. So maybe there's some people saying, 
this is a scenario moving forward where we have all this information with less and less material, and it's kind of spinning out of control what we can do. Do you think of the dangers that some people may talk about? Do you think there's any of those that we need to be careful to hew to a very careful path so that we don't really kind of derail these efforts? Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the cautionary tales of gene therapy, which I had mentioned as having a resurgence, is many of us remember in the 80s when this technology was really new and just ready for testing in humans, there was an unfortunate death at the University of Pennsylvania, which has sort of become known as gene therapy gate. And that death put a chill on the field, a decade long, you know, sort of dormancy on what was otherwise a really promising area of therapeutics. And the same thing could happen for almost anything we're talking about now, whether it's cell replacement therapies, if that were to give rise to an unrestrained cancer in a patient or lead to some really untoward effect. And the same for the more modern gene therapies, the gene editing, which makes these permanent changes to the genome. I think we need to be very cautious in the way these things are deployed. And there needs to be a careful balance between need, you know, unmet need and the severity of the disease and the treatment that can be afforded. I think you're aware of this. The uh, National Science Foundation and the National Academy of Sciences all met uh, to come to some sort of consensus in particular around gene editing and gene therapy to try to decide, you know, what would be the limits therapeutically. And right now what they've called for is, in essence, a moratorium on the gene editing of embryos or germline cells because we need to discuss that more as a society to understand what that would mean and how necessary that would be for a therapeutic. But they say full steam ahead in terms of using normal safety measures to deploy these in human adult cells to try to cure disease. So you're seeing companies race ahead with that type of technology. I think there needs to be a bigger discussion around cell replacement biology, around what are the risks, what are the benefits, what are the areas that we should see accelerated therapies in. And I think that's just starting to happen. It's just a new area, but I think that once you have more information and more informed discussion, you are able to shift people's comfort levels and what becomes acceptable versus unacceptable. Just a personal note, as I said, you're an inspiration, Chad, and you've been on the ground right next to everything. So I'd just be interested to know, what's been the biggest surprise in the arc last 14 years, 15 years for you? What's the thing that maybe you expected the least, uh, that you're the most surprised at, that we've been able to make progress on that you never anticipated? I think in my career, you know, I try to tell undergraduates this and graduate students, never be surprised by biology. Like if you can think it, it probably already exists in the natural world. But the two things that did quite came out of left field, but were really truly earth shattering and that I've been right next to and able to use in my career was the discovery of induced pluripotent stem cells by Shinya Yamanaka. I think there were a lot of people that were working on it, including myself, for years and years, and had thought that it would be a much more complicated problem than the four genes that he eventually found, and now there's various ways to do it, but the four genes that could take any adult cell and turn them back into something that was almost identical to a human embryonic stem cell. That was just earth-shattering, and the way in which it rewrote our concepts of cell states and cell biology and the sort of floodgates that opened after that. So the last decade has really been one where we now no longer think of cell identity as such a static thing, but something that can be not so immutable, but can be shifted 
sort of and toggled back and forth any which way we want. That one was truly outstanding. And the other one, which I think a lot of people are coming to grips with, was is this ability to write or rewrite your genome at will. And again, this was taking advantage of uh, biology that already exists. You know, simple bacteria gave us the tools that we're now deploying in human cells to make changes to the genome at will. And if you would have told me two decades ago when I was struggling as a graduate student to make a mouse knockout, that you would be able to, within days, if not weeks, make any change to a genome that you wanted to with these gene editing tools, I would have thought that that was science fiction. It was as good as any novel I'd read. And so knowing how rapidly things have advanced, our ability to manipulate cells, to manipulate the identities and their genomes, has really put us into what I like to call the era of cell biology. You know, the last hundred years was really the era of DNA. And now I think we're in the era of the cell. And I think we'll be returning to the era of physiology, which is the cells that integrates into tissues, organs, and the more complex being. Add to this data science and the big revolution in AI, and you're going to get unprecedented sort of gains in uh, human learning and human knowledge. I think it's a really exciting time to be in science. Progress used to be very slow. Five years into a postdoc, you might have made one knockout mouse and really understood something about one gene, whereas now people are doing genome-wide deletion screens with a CRISPR library and their cell type of choice and understanding biology in a whole new way. So I would just say it's a brave new world. And if I were a grad student, I would be extremely excited about the opportunities. Maybe not so excited about the salary, though. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, unfortunately, it's still indentured slavery for a little while. I look back on that time in my life and, you know, the simple joy of just doing experiments and focusing on the one thing and learning with a, a lot of fondness. Once you're a professor and you're doing the things that professors do, that simple joy of discovery is diminished considerably. So at times, we, I think we all wish we could get back to the bench and really just focus on, did this experiment work? Are the bacteria growing on the plate the next day, for instance? The simple, simple truths, right? Yes. Last thing, just because you set it up so nice, and you've really alluded to the potential here, but I know you're not a betting man, but if you had to identify one major step forward or in a field that you anticipate that it maybe is unexpected, could you guess at one that you think is going to make a big, big splash without betraying your own science, of course? No, I won't betray my science, but I will say that what's been surprising me, because I wasn't paying any attention to it, are the huge leaps and bounds and gains with artificial intelligence. These are just machine learning algorithms that now have bigger data sets. So with these larger data sets can actually learn more and what they learn is now more valid. And I think all of us know that biology has entered into a big data era, a big data era where we're having ever more trouble sort of understanding these whole casts of uh, whether it's hundreds of thousands of people's genomes or expression data from cells, et cetera. I think the combination of what is this technological achievement in artificial intelligence with enormous amounts of biological information, as well as understandings of how certain biological systems work, is going to be a revolution. And you're already starting to see a little bit of it play out slowly in small systems biology's way. But people have been speaking about this, you know, and you're always saying like things are often hyped. They were speaking about it 10 years ago, but I think you're going to see the first real fruits of this labor in the next decade. And I think it's going to blow all of us away. I don't think the modern or next generation biologist is going to be a, is just a biologist. I think there'll be a combination, molecular, cellular, and computational biologists wrapped in one. 
All right, Chad, I'll tell you, I'll put my money on that. I got at least $20, $30, says that that might work out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks a million for talking to us. Is there anything you want to close with? Anything you want to talk to, a shout out or anything? No, I'd just like to thank the people in my laboratory, of course, who've made all the research we've done possible. Obviously, I'm doing very little of the pipetting at the bench these days, and um, I'm ever grateful to the Harvard Stem Cell Institute for supporting not just our work at its earliest stage, but even now that we've matured, the stuff that is crazy that no one would ever get behind. So without funding in that sort of open and forward-thinking way, I don't think you can ever push the envelope in science. All right, guys, you heard it from Dr. Cowan. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for talking to us, man. Of course. Thank you. All right, Kiki, that was a great talk with Chad Cowan. We missed you, my dear, but, you know, it was what it was. And I know you listened to the interview. Give me your thoughts. What do you think of this guy and what he's doing? He's doing everything pretty much, but come on, zero in. Tell me what you think. Really, he's doing everything, but it is so exciting to figure out, you know, what are these genetic predictors of disease, aspects of disease? How can we use CRISPR? I mean, I love CRISPR. I think it is one of the most powerful tools that we are developing at this point in time to look into this kind of stuff. And I'm glad people like Chad are using it and hopefully heading us toward therapies. Yeah, you know, and what stuck out to me, and it's great to hear this type of thing, because when a lot of scientists, they'll stake their whole career on something, and then they just, they kind of get, they get stuck with it, they put invested so much energy into it, that if it doesn't turn out to be true, their whole life is blown up. And so it was nice for me to hear from Chad as he went through all these experiments, that what an enormous relief it was for him to see that all this, you know, I don't want to say hype, but the projections, the promise Everything we've been talking about these cells being able to do, they're actually able to do it. So I'm relieved myself. He didn't waste his time. No. <laughs> exactly. No. All those years, he's finally, you know, got some validation, affirmation, and he deserves it. He's worked really hard. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. There's still more to come. Oh, for sure, for sure. You can expect a lot of big things from Dr. Cowan and his group. So it's time now, though. For us to close the show, we have come to the end of the show. We've done the interview. We've done the roundup. But it is time now for our last little bit, the Stem Cell Podcast rant. This rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that might bother you. Does it most likely bother you? I don't know. You're going to have to tweet us and tell us that. Dalen, what are you ranting about today? I'll tell you who it's bothering. It's bothering Mother Nature, that's who it's bothering. You know, you talked about it in the roundup there, you know, about pollution, 2,100 cities, unhealthy air. It doesn't seem like it's getting worse, although, like, we have all these commitments. But it does seem now like we're slipping backwards. There's this all this administrative muck-up where the, the head of the EPA, this guy Scott Pruitt, is making crazy changes. He's getting rid of scientists that receive grants from the EPA, you know, shedding them from the speaker list of these talks. Uh, He's, I think, kind of out of his element here. Also canceling speaking appearances of three agency scientists who are scheduled to discuss climate change because they acknowledge that climate change exists. I don't understand what's going on here. I don't even think I can rant about this. I'm irate. I'm red in the face. These people denying climate change, are they just like blatantly 
choking out the voices that are trying to talk about the, the harsh realities out there. What the hell is going on? Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. The thing that comes to mind for me, though, is, you know, regulations, the EPA, our government, governmental bodies, we have regulations that are made as by these organizations, and they are also the keepers of those regulations. And so if the regulation keepers are pulled back, those regulations aren't good anymore, and we are going to slide backwards even further. Uh, I read something recently where there was a comment made that, you know, we should be mining and using our protected lands because why else do we have them if we're not going to use them for economic benefit? Never mind the fact that having protected lands helps all sorts of levels of population within the ecosystem. Now it's like, we've got these trees, let's cut them down. Hey, we've got that bit of rock, let's mine it. Yeah, no. No. We don't have to use everything. Yeah, and we don't have all this stuff. We don't have anything. <laughs> We're borrowing against our future, and it doesn't look good for them. My little kitties, poor guys. Yeah, I mean, that is the question. You know, it's the long-term view of things. Can't we take a century view? Can't we take a thousand-year view and have this long long game. It's all about the long game. And it seems as though all we are playing these days is the short game. Yeah. And that's what's upsetting because it's short-sighted and it is going to affect us negatively moving down the road. I mean, I don't want my kid to be living in a city where he has to wear a special gas mask to breathe. No, no? a dome. It's going to be a dome. It's going to be kind of cool, actually, because right. there's going to be lasers shooting <laughs> From every direction. Wait, are you talking about a laser a light show? <laughs> yes, a cooler with, with, with horrible air. Is the oh, right. You know, but you'll be able to see the lasers going through yes. the air because yes. of all the smoke and the pollutants. And so... There you go. Silver lining. <laughs> there you go. Silver foggy lining. Yuck. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think we need to rant about it. We've said our piece. It's very clear to everybody who has a brain what I don't think. How can they do this? They cannot do this, all right? They just can't. And it's because, you know, they're from Wizard of Oz part where they wish they had a heart, I guess. They wish they had a brain. They wish they had a heart. <sighs> not, nothing we can do for them, Keats. Nothing we can do. I hope um, they die first. Well, yeah, people who are interested, you can call your Congress people and there are elections coming up very soon so maybe get out and bring out the vote there you go positive note ten. and if you're a scientist who studies things related to environmental toxicants pollutants aspects of the environment maybe you can make your voice heard by volunteering to inform members of our elected congressional offices yeah and you epa scientists hang in there all right Nothing lasts forever. These guys won't last. And don't worry. I'll be out here shouting about climate change, even if you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. As much good as that will do. Yeah. We're behind you guys. We support you at the Stem Cell Podcast. That's right. All right, everybody. Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at Stem Cell Podcast. And don't forget to take our survey at StemCellPodcast.com. All right, Dalen, that concludes episode 104 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to tune in. 
for our next stem cell episode.